This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lord Kitchener by G. K. Chesterton Section 2 The last of these was Gordon, that romantic and even eccentric figure of whom so much might be said. Perhaps the most essential thing to say of him here is that fortune once again played the artist in sending such a man at once as the leader and the herald of a man like Kitchener to show the way and to make the occasion to be a sacrifice and a signal for vengeance. Whatever else there was about Gordon, there was about him the air not only of a hero, but the hero of a tragedy. Something oriental in his own mysticism, something most of his countrymen would have called moonshine, something perverse in his courage, something childish and beautiful in that perversity, marked him out as the man who walks to doom. The man who, in a hundred poems or fables, goes up to a city to be crucified. He had gone to Khartoum to arrange the withdrawal of the troops from the Sudan, the government having decided, if possible, to live at peace with the new modest dictatorship, and he went through the deserts almost as solitary as a bird, on a journey as lonely as his end. He was cut off and besieged in Khartoum by the modest armies, and fell with the falling city. Long before his end he had been in touch with Kitchener, now of the Egyptian Intelligence Department, and weaving very carefully a vast net of diplomacy and strategy in which the slayers of Gordon were to be taken at last. A well-known English journalist, Bennett Burleigh, wandering near Dongla, fell into a conversation with an Arab who spoke excellent English, and who, with a hospitality highly improper in a Moslem, produced two bottles of claret for his entertainment. The name of this Arab was Kitchener, and the two bottles were all he had. The journalist obtained, along with the claret, his first glimpse of the great and extraordinary schemes with which Kitchener was already working to avenge the comrade who had fallen in Khartoum. This part of the work was as personal as that of a private detective plotting against a private murderer in a modern detective story. Kitchener had learned to speak the Arab tongue, not only freely but sociably. He wore the Arab dress and fell into the Arab type of courtesy so effectively that even his blue northern eyes did not betray him. Above all, he sympathized with the Arab character, and in a thousand places sprinkled over the map of northeast Africa, he made friends for himself and therefore enemies for the Mahdi. This was the first, and superficially, the most individual of the converging plans which were to checkmate the desert empire, and its effects were very far-reaching. Again and again in subsequent years, when the missionaries of the modest religion pushed northward, they found themselves entangled among tribes which the English power had not so much conquered as converted. The legend of the great prophet encountered something more elusive than laws or military plans. It encountered another legend, an influence which also carried the echoes of the voice of a man. The Abed de Arabs, it was said, made a chain across the desert which the new and awful faith could not pass. 
the Medour of Dongola was on the point of joining the ever-victorious prophet of Abdurman. Kitchener, clad as an Arab, went out almost alone to speak with him. What passed, perhaps we can never tell, but before his guest had even left him, the Medeer flew two arms, fell upon the prophet's host at Cortai, and drove them before him. The second and superficially more solid process of preparation is much better known. It was the education of the native Egyptian army. It is not necessary to swallow all the natural jingoism of English journalism in order to see something truly historic about the English officer's work with the Fellaheen, or native race, of Egypt. For centuries they had lain as level as the slime of the Nile, and all the conquerors in the chronicles of men had passed over them like a pavement. Though professing the challenging creed of the Moslems, they seemed to have reached something like the pessimist patience of the Hindus, to have turned this slime once more into a human river, to have lifted this pavement once more into a human rampart or barricade, is not a small thing, nor a thing that could possibly be done even by mere power, still less by mere money. And this Kitchener and his English companions certainly did. There must have been something much more than a mere cynical severity in organization in the man who did it. There must be something more than a mere commercial common sense in the nation in whose name it was done. It is easy enough, with sufficient dullness and greed of detail, to organize anything or anybody. It is easy enough to make people obey a bugle or a factory hooter, as the Prussian soldiers obey a bugle. But it is no such trumpet that makes possible the resurrection of the dead. The success of this second of the three converging designs of Kitchener, the making of a new Egyptian army, was soon seen in the expedition against Angola. It had been foreshadowed in a successful defense at Sukane, in which Kitchener was wounded, a defense against Osman Digna, perhaps the first of the modest generals, whose own strongholds were eventually stormed at Gemeza, and the victory at Toski, where fell the great warrior Wad el-Najumi, whose strategy had struck down both Hicks and Gordon. But the turn of the tide was Dongola. In 1892, General, now Lord Greenfell, who had been Sirdar, or Commander-in-Chief of the Egyptian Army, and ordered the advance at Toski, retired and left his post vacant. The great public servant, known latterly as Lord Cromer, had long had his eye on Kitchener and the part he had played, even as a young lieutenant in the new military formation of the Fellaheen. He was now put at the head of the whole new army, and the first work that fell to him was leading the new expedition. In three days, after the order was received, the force started at nightfall and marched southward into the night. The detail is something more than picturesque, for on all accounts of that formidable attack on the Mahdi's power, a quality of darkness rests like a kind of cloud. It was, for one thing, a surprise attack, and a very secret one, so that the cloud was as practical as a cloak. But it was also the re-entrance of a territory which an instinct has led the English to call the Dark Continent, even under its blazing noon. There, vast distances alone made a veil like that of darkness, 
and there the lives of Gordon and Hicks and hundreds more had been swallowed up in an ancient silence. Perhaps we cannot guess today, after the colder completion of Kitchener's work, what it meant for those who went on that nocturnal march, who crept up in two lines, one along the river and the other along an abandoned railway track, moving through the black night, and in the black night encamped and waited for the rising of the moon. Anyhow, the tale told of it strikes this note, especially in one touch of what can only be called terrible triviality. I mean the reference to the new noise heard just before daybreak, revealing the nearness of the enemy, the dreadful drum of Islam calling for prayer to an awful god, a god not to be worshipped by the changing and sometimes cheerful notes of a harp or organ, but only by the drum that maddens by mere repetition. But the third of Kitchener's lines of approach remains to consider. The surprise attack which captured the riverside village of Firkat had eventually led, in spite of storms that warred on the advance like armies, and in one place practically wiped out a brigade, to the fall of Dongola itself. But Dongola was not the high place of the enemy. It was not there that Gordon died, or that Abdullahi was still alive. Far away up the dark river were the twin cities of the tragedy, the city of the murder and the city of the murderer. It was in relation to this fixed point of fact that Kitchener's next proceeding is seen to be supremely characteristic. He was so anxious to do one thing that he was cautious about doing it. He was more concerned to obtain a success than to appear to deserve it. He did not want a moral victory, but a mathematical certainty. So far from following up the dash in the dark upon Firkat or Dongola with more romantic risks, he decided not to advance on the Mahdi's host a minute faster than men could follow him building a railway. He created behind him a colossal causeway of communications, going out alone into the wastes, where there was and had been no other mortal trace or track. The engineering genius of Giraud, a Canadian, designed and developed it with what was, considering the nature of the task, brilliant rapidity, but by the standards of desert warfare it must have seemed that Kitchener and his English made war as slowly as grass grows or orchards bear fruit. The horsemen of Araby, darting to and fro like swallows, must have felt as if they were menaced by the advance of a giant snail. But it was a snail that left a shining track unknown to those sands. For the first time since Rome decayed, something was being made there that could remain. The effect of this growing road, one might almost say this living road, began to be felt. Mahmoud, the modest military leader, fell back from Berber, and gathered his hosts more closely round the sacred city on the Nile. Kitchener, making another night march up the Atbera River, stormed the Arab camp and took Mamau prisoner. Then at last he moved finally up the western bank of the Nile and came in sight of Omdurman. It is somewhat of a disproportion to dwell on the fight that followed and the fall of the great city. The fighting had been done already, and more than half of it was working, fighting a long fight against the centuries, against the ages of sloth, and the great sleep of the desert, where there had been nothing but vision, and against a racial decline that men had accepted as a doom. 
on the following sunday a memorial service for charles gordon was held in the place where he was slain the fact that kitchener fought with rails as much as with guns rather fixed from this time forward the fashionable view of his character he was talked of as if he were himself made of metal with a head filled not only with calculations but with clockwork this is symbolically true in so far as it means that he was by temper what he was by trade an engineer he had conquered the mahdi where many had failed to do so but what he had chiefly conquered was the desert a great and greedy giant he brought cairo to khartoum we might say that he brought london or liverpool with him to the gates of the strange city of abdurman some parts of his actions supported even regrettably the reputation of rigidity but if any admirer had in this hour of triumph been staring at him as at a stone sphinx of inflexible fate that admirer would have been very much puzzled by the next passage of his life kitchener was something much more than a machine for in the mind as much as in the body flexibility is far more masculine than inflexibility a situation developed almost instantly after his victory in which he was to show that he was a diplomatist as well as a soldier at Feshoda, a little farther up the nile he found something more surprising and perhaps more romantic than the wildest dervish of the desert solitudes a french officer and one of the most valiant and distinguished of french officers major marchand had penetrated to the place with the pertinacity of a great explorer and seemed prepared to hold it with all the unselfish arrogance of a patriot it is said that the frenchman not only welcomed kitchener in the name of france but invited him with courteous irony to partake of vegetables grown on the spot a symbol of stable occupation the story if it be true is admirably french for it reveals at once the wit and the peasant but the humour of the englishman was worthily equal to the wit of the frenchman and it was humour of that sane sort which we call good humour political papers in pacific england and france raved and ranted over the crisis responsible journalists howled with jingoism but through it all until the moment when the french agreed to retire the two most placable and even sociable figures were the two grim tropical travellers and soldiers who faced each other on the burning sands of fashoda as we see them facing each other we have again the vague sense of a sign or parable which runs through this story for they were to meet again long afterwards as allies when both were leading their countrymen against the great enemy in the great war the end of section two